Welcome to Mike's Notes. This episode is going to be an audio version of a blog post I wrote that was some notes on a Howard Marks memo that was titled Expert Opinion. Marks is the co-founder of Oak Tree Capital Management. He's one of Forbes's wealthiest Americans and he writes these wonderful memos that are amazingly free that people can read and, and uh, he shares his thoughts about different things. And the latest one the latest memo was really a serendipitous occasion for me. The things that he was writing about tied into a number of other things that I've been reading and watching and listening to. And so I thought since there was this synergy of ideas, there were all these things that were related to each other, it would be interesting to explore the dominoes. One idea from Marx is that... Um, we have to evaluate the information we take in. And we shouldn't just assume that because information is free or because information is paid for that it's good information. I mean, Marx's memos I consider good information and they're free. So the adage that you get what you pay for isn't necessarily true when it comes to that. The same with Michael Mobison's memos. Michael Mobison writes some wonderful documents for Credit Suisse. And uh, even though some of them are a little harder for me to get through. They're still valuable. The blog that I write is mostly free. Podcasts are mostly free. Um, but there are some things that aren't free that we should be worried about. And Marx's memo takes on the media. And he looks at uh, how much media should you have in your life? And when is it valuable and when is it not? So there were just a few ideas that I wanted to jump into from Marx's memo. Ready? One. Entertainment or information. The first moment of serendipity was the fact that I read Marx's memo almost uh, immediately after I watched a YouTube video from Cal Newport. Newport is this computer science professor at Georgetown University, and he's written a couple books that I've really enjoyed. The most recent one is Deep Work, and um, the one before that was So Good They Can't Ignore You. And Newport's overarching thesis, his big point, is that rare and valuable jobs require rare and valuable skills. And so if you want a job like that, you have to have skills that that job will reward. And in this TEDx talk that Newport gives, he uh, suggests that people should quit social media. And he makes, he makes uh, three points to support this case. The first is that social media is entertainment. He compares it to a slot machine. And as soon as he says that, the first thing I thought of was emojis. Yeah, emojis are almost identical to, in fact, they may be taken from, for all I know, the shiny logos on sh slot machines. And... When Newport mentions that social media is entertainment, if we think of it that way, maybe we'll consume less of it. Right now I'm also reading Richard Thaler's Misbehaving, and Thaler found out that people use mental bucket budgets to keep track of their expenses. So one study he did was he gave half of a group of students one survey and half of a group of students another survey. And in the first half, he gave them this situation. Pretend that you were late for class and you got a parking ticket that was $50. How likely are you to spend $40 going to the movies this weekend? And then the students would answer. And then the second group of students, he said, earlier in this week, you went to a concert that cost $50. How likely are you to spend $40 at the movies this weekend? And he found that students who had 
been to the concert. That is, students who had already drawn from their entertainment bucket budget were less likely to go to the movies than those students who had just gotten the parking ticket. And Thaler's theory is that we... Um, we do this because it's an easy way of mental accounting. We can say, okay, I already spent some money doing this thing. I should not spend quite as much money doing this thing. And that's a really easy way to process these transactions. And if we think of social media in the same way, we can compare it to like watching a movie or watching television, where if you spend an hour and a half on social media every day, which seems like a lot as I'm saying it, but I'm sure if you added up the minutes here, the minutes in the bathroom, the minutes in bed before you get up, and the minutes uh, in bed before you fall asleep, you know, there's probably some days when I spend an hour and a half on social media and I don't even have any apps installed anymore. But if you add those things up and you compare it to your entertainment budget, that's like watching a movie every day. Would you ever think of sitting down on your couch and watching a movie every day after you got home from work or first thing when you got up in the morning? No, we probably wouldn't do that because we have these buckets. And so if we frame social media as entertainment, maybe we can keep that bucket accounting a little more straight. Newport's second point is that social media is not important to your success. Like I said, his thesis is that rare and valuable jobs require rare and valuable skills. We looked at this in a Moats and Podcast blog post, which uh, examined whether or not podcasts could be profitable. And we said that they probably could become profitable, but what it wasn't gonna be easy, and it couldn't only be profitability that a podcaster pursued, and a podcaster was probably going to have to offer some non-public goods. As Trent Griffin wrote, supply is the killer of value. So you can be good at social media. You can be really good at social media, but it doesn't take much to be good at social media. It doesn't um, define a rare and valuable skill being good at social media. Newport's third point was that social media can actually be hazardous. He says that when you fragment your attention, you can reduce your ability to do deep work. And there's been some other studies out lately that found that the more you post on Facebook, the higher correlated your rates of depression could be, or you could be more anxious. Even the very day that I was proofing this blog post, there was a series of YouTube videos from PewDiePie and Casey Neistat pointing out that when you watch their videos, if they seem happy, that's not a fair representation. If you see them happy in 99% of their videos, do not assume that they are happy 99% of the time. It gives this false uh, sense of accuracy. It's the availability bias because that's what comes to mind when you think of that person. That's what you think of that person is. And both of them made videos stating that it's not the case. So here we have the situation where we see that social media from Newport's point of view and regular media from Marx's point of view is really entertainment. It may not be helping us as much as we as we think we should. We feel like we should be dialed in and we should be paying attention and we should know what's going on, but how much does that really help us in the things that we want to get done? This is uh, what Marx writes when he talks about um, some of the failings of media. It also uh, can be an example of hindsight bias. In particular, now it's considered to have been a big mistake for Clinton to fail to address the concerns of white men and set out a solution for those who lost jobs and were omitted from economic progress. But during the campaign, no one pointed to this error. 
Those are fair points, but how much is that going to help us? Even if we were involved in politics, even if you're listening right now and your job was in politics, how much is it going to help to fight the last war? Is a reactionary point of view and footing going to help? Probably not. So why is media as entertainment a thing? Why can't we just pay attention and learn things? Well, it's hard to learn things. Information takes work. Consumers need a fluency and an understanding of the background conditions to learn something. A knowledge of history is important too. If we're going to make a list of things that we need, let's open up some cognitive space to think about the survivor bias and alternative histories as well. Learning and thinking and processing information is hard. It engages what Danny Kahneman says System 2 is supposed to do. And your System 2, if it's not trained, can get fatigued. Newport writes about this in his book Deep Work where he says it took him a long time and lots of training to be able to focus on something for two or three hours. At first he had to start small. Charlie Munger says this. Biological creatures ordinarily prefer effort minimization and routine activities and don't like removals of long-enjoyed benefits. The media knows this. Danny Kahneman wrote a book about our preference for thinking fast. That means thinking visually and seeking confirmation. That's fast thinking. That's easy thinking. That's what our system won. That's what our default state likes to do. Following the media experts while entertaining, writes Howard Marks, can be a waste of time intellectually. Two. You have to be there. I'll bang on this drum as long as needed. You have to go to the front lines. You have to be on banana plantations. You have to go to the place where the winds of the real world blow in your face and you have to get information from those places. Alternatives don't work as well. Let me share another story of serendipity. The day before I read Howard Marks's memo, Expert Opinion, I was on a run and I was listening to Lisa Servan on NPR's Fresh Air. Servan is a professor with a focus on consumer banking and she wanted to know more about unbanking. Why do people um, go without checking and savings accounts? Why do they pay these payday uh, lending fees? when they can just go to a bank and have a check cash. So one day she invited a payday lender to her class at Penn, and this is what she said on uh, NPR. Joe Coleman showed up. He's a very smart, interesting man who spoke very persuasively about why he believed his businesses were really serving the community, and it made a lot of sense. And so I was trying to really square Joe's story with the data, and it didn't add up. Combined with my knowledge that, you know, my feelings and experience that low-income people do make smart economic decisions when they can. So, do you see what happened here? Servant's not an idiot. She's not reacting. She's studied this idea, she's compared it to her own life, and she's drawn a conclusion. Does that sound familiar? When you have experiences, and then you study other examples, and then you draw a conclusion? That's what Servant's done. That's the information that she is acting on. So, we can't say she's misinformed. We can't say that she's playing from a uh, biased state. So she gets this experience and she realizes she doesn't understand anything, everything and she wants to learn more. So she approaches Coleman and she says, hey, can I come work as a, as a uh, payday lender? So she does. She goes and she spends four months working the counter of a payday lending shop. This is what she said on NPR. 
That experience showed me why I needed to be behind that window because even though I was working there and dealing with people every single day, I still, with my own biases and having grown up using mainstream financial services, didn't get it. So, Servan invites someone to class. She has some cognitive dissonance because he says things that she didn't understand or fully appreciate. She goes to the counter and she uh, starts to see what it's like. She goes there. She is there. And she learns more. And it gets even better. When her four months were up, Servan walked around the counter and told her customers she was a researcher and wanted to ask them questions. And they told her even more. So she dives deeper into this rabbit hole and finds more and more good information that tells a fuller and fuller story of what's happening. This is what Marx writes. It's clear that people who work in the media hadn't understood many average Americans. Yeah, that's why the predictions were so wrong is that the people in the media didn't go out. They didn't get to the front lines. They didn't visit the banana plantations. They didn't go there to talk to the people who were living it and experiencing it. The most positive extreme example might be the story told in Mountains Beyond Mountains. Paul Farmer, the feature and protagonist of that book, is a rural doctor in Haiti, and he says this, I would read stuff from scholarly texts and know they were wrong. Living in Haiti, I realized that a minor error in one setting of power and privilege could have an enormous impact on the poor in another. So here we have Paul Farmer, a man who um, is smart book-wise, he's smart street-wise, he has graduated from Harvard Medical School, and he's working in Haiti, and he's like, no, 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 no. The things that people are writing about, that's not how it goes. So what happened? The predominant medical theory for how someone got AIDS was that they shared an intravenous drug needle or had multiple concurrent sexual partners. That is, they had sexual partners uh, at the same time. And so that was the theory for why AIDS was higher in Haiti. Farmer goes to Haiti and he finds out that the people there are way too poor to buy any drugs and they tended to have sequential partners, that is, one at a time. So what gives? I'll leave the solution in the book Mountains Beyond Mountains, which is an absolutely fantastic read. But this proves the point we're trying to make here is that you have to be there. You have to go to the front lines and figure out what is really happening on the ground and how does that relate to the big picture. Three. What do experts know and how do experts make good predictions? Halfway through the memo, Marx really lays into the New York Post football experts. Their record uh, for making predictions for the most recent football season was not much better than the flip of a coin. Marx writes, Virtually none of the 11 experts' overall picks added value after fees. Sound familiar? And then he goes on, Even the average of the experts' best bets wouldn't have produced a positive return after fees. Oof. It's almost as if those experts were there to entertain rather than inform. It's too bad there isn't a system that would help us make better picks. Or, to put it another way, to forecast results in a super way. Actually, I hope you're sitting down for this, there is just a system. And it comes in a reusable, convenient, portable form that purchasers are encouraged to write in and even take notes. Colloquially, this is known as a book. 
Super Forecasting by Philip Tetlock is a great book. We actually used Tetlock's framework to make better sports predictions when we asked, is Bill Simmons a super forecaster? If you want to read that full blog post, you can, um, but we'll just hit the highlights real quick. What do super forecasters do well? Well, super forecasters pick their spots. They don't take every bet, they choose only valuable bets. And so the New York Post experts didn't have this opportunity. Writing for the New York Post in the sports section, they just had to pick every NFL game. And so the NFL is a huge market. It's probably the, one of the, it's probably the most watched gambling market in the world. And just like investors will tell you over and over again, you have to fish in different ponds where there's not a lot of other fishermen. There's no value in gambling for the NFL. The second thing is that super forecasters break intractable problems into tractable sub-problems. Marx writes that he had lunch with Warren Buffett and they both agree that information should be knowable and important. So if you can't uh, make a intractable problem into tractable sub-problems. It's not knowable. You can't figure it out. Third, super forecasters balance the inside view and the base rates. That is, they take what normally happens here and compares it to what do I think is going to happen here and then moves between those two points. And I'm not sure that New York writers are going to be unbiased towards New York sports teams. In fact, Marx really lays into them about their mangy Week 16 predictions. The fourth thing super forecasters do is they don't overreact or underreact to new information. So, you have to ask yourself, do people writing for the sports section in newspapers and do people who are talking heads on television overreact or underreact to new information. We'll leave that one out there. The fifth thing super forecasters do is they distinguish some degree of doubt. They don't uh, get sucked into details that sound very specific and accurate. They don't really matter. And I'm amazed at how often this comes up in some of the uh, sports dialogue that I hear where such and such team is traveling west and they have a combined 40 games of experience and the quarterback they're playing is left-handed. It's like, give me a break. How much data mining are we going to do to find this obscure statistic that actually proves true because the total number of instances is so small? The sixth thing super forecasters do is they balance overconfidence. As Daryl Morey reminded us in a recent blog post, people don't like to hear maybe this and maybe that, but it's often the best and most accurate answer. The seventh thing super forecasters do is that they check for hindsight bias, which is almost a joke in sports media. People can be more accurate than a coin flip, but it's going to take information like reading super forecasting and it's going to take less entertainment like social media. Your time is zero sum. Every hour doing one thing is one hour you don't spend doing another. Make sure it's th doing things that you really enjoy. Four. This was my favorite part of the memo when Ho Howard Marks is talking about what he says to people when they ask him about the macroeconomic uh, environment. Here's what he writes. People have been preoccupied with when interest rate increases would take place, and that's the question I've been asked most often. My response has been consistent. How would I know, and why do you care? <laughs> this is such a great advice. This is such a wonderful mental attitude to have, is that I don't know, 
and I don't care. And that's actually what Jason Zweig says you get from index investing. If you're an index investor, you have this, this wonderful state of peace where you can say, I don't know, and I don't care. Here's what Zweig, uh, Jason Zweig writes. The ultimate beauty of index funds is that they get you utterly out of the business of guessing what will happen next. They enable you to say seven magic words. I don't know, and I don't care. Will value stocks do better than growth stocks? I don't know, and I don't care. My index fund owns both. Will healthcare stocks be the best bet for the next 20 years? I don't know, and I don't care. My index fund owns them both. So we have this wonderful freedom when we give up these things where it doesn't matter. It gets back, it gets back to that Buffett and Mark's quote where if something is knowable and it's important, you should pursue it. If it's not knowable or if it's not important, forget about it. Five. I uh, was talking to a friend, this is a couple of years ago, and he told me that he's developed this thing called um, red flags for words. He had some system that uh, made it sound really catchy, but the idea was is that if you hear a certain kind of a word, or if you hear a certain kind of an idea, it should put you on alert. To use Danny Kahneman's language, you should train yourself so that when these words or ideas come up, it triggers your system too to engage and say like, whoa, 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 slow down. I'm not sure if this is going to be as accurate or as certain as we're making it out to be. And I really like this idea from my friend. I tried to install it with words like always, never, uh, and understand that the truth is usually in between always and never. And after reading Michael Lewis's book, The Undoing Project, I have another one of these triggers, and it's the metaphor. This is what Amos Tversky uh, is quoted as saying in Lewis's book. The metaphor is a cover-up. We see this idea in Marx's writing. He says that people often ask him, what inning are we in? And this metaphor assumes that a life cycle, like a market or a stock or a macro environment condition or a political election series or any sort of like time cycle is like a baseball game. And if you know the moment of the game, then you can take advantage of what's going to happen, and what will happen next. It's a simple way to convey a complicated idea, but as Tversky warns us, it's not the whole picture. This is what Marx writes. A standard baseball game consists of nine innings, so second inning, sixth, or ninth has a clear meaning, but with the things we're wondering about here, we never know how long the game will run. So when people say, what inning are we in? It's a convenient way to say, do you think we're toward the beginning or we're toward the end of this situation that we're talking about? But Marx is pointing out that the end is really hard to know. You have no idea when the housing bubble is going to, to crash or uh, when the stock market is going to rally. You never know those endpoints. Those are only uh, found in hindsight and looking backwards. That's not to say metaphors are always a horrible thing. We can sometimes use them to our advantage. Steve Jobs told Walter Isaacson, People know how to deal with a desktop intuitively. If you walk into an office, there are papers on a desk. The one on top is the most important. People know how to switch priorities. Part of the reason we model our computers on metaphor, like the desktop, is that we can leverage this experience that people already have. So, Knowing how something works and comparing it to something you don't know how it works, that can be really helpful. 
The problem is, is that if we get stuck in situations where we use a metaphor to convey a complicated idea and that metaphor really explains too much or it's dangerous to assume things are correct. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I really hope you enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun to write this blog post and a lot of fun to record that. Just to uh, reiterate the points we covered. One, are you consuming something for entertainment or information? And should you uh, reconsider how you're categorizing and budgeting those different things? Two, you have to be there. If you want to understand something, you have to go to the front lines and talk to the people who are actually living that or facing that problem. Three, how do experts know anything? Well, there's a good book called Super Forecasting that can help you make better predictions about the future. Number four, what do you know about and what do you care about? And is that information and are those problems knowable? And do they provide answers? And if they don't, maybe you shouldn't focus on that. Number five, metaphors can be really helpful with certain things, but they can also do a lot of harm. Be careful how you use them. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mike's Notes.